You're listening to The Razor's Edge. The Razor's Edge is an investing podcast. Your hosts are Akram's Razor, an investor and trader with decades of experience in markets, and me, Daniel Schwarzman, who has been focused on the market as a career for the past decade. We take investing ideas or themes we're interested in and break them down, or we speak with expert guests to get a wider understanding of a given topic. To get episodes of The Razor's Edge, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you have a chance, or share this show with a friend. You can also check out our work on Seeking Alpha under our respective names, or reach us on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman or at Akram's Razor. Our standard disclaimer and disclosure. The Razor's Edge is a Shortman Studios production. The views discussed belong to either Akram or me, respectively, or to our guests when we have them. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. We'll disclose any positions in any stocks discussed at the end of the podcast or during our introduction to the given episode. Oops, it happened again. A company we follow closely on the razor's edge, reported earnings, met or beat expectations, and then sold off heavily, along with a major market sell-off. Last time, it was PagerDuty. This quarter, it's Twitter. To work through Twitter's quarter, and some of the angst and anxiety around it, we speak with Rajiv Sood. Rajiv is a Silicon Valley veteran, with time logged at Google, AdMob, which was then bought out by Google while he was there, Telepart, and then at Twitter after Twitter bought Telepart. He's been out of Twitter for about two years, but as a shareholder and a frequent tweeter, he still follows the company closely. We break down the ups and downs of the quarter, but Rajiv also sheds light on the company's travails with their ad servers, how the company thinks through product releases, and the insider perspective on Jack Dorsey's leadership. It's a good conversation, and I think it will help make clear why this may be a turning point for Twitter. Given he and Akram are both major tweeters, it shouldn't be surprising that they had a lot to talk about. Today's conversation is only part one of a three-parter that we'll share over the next couple weeks. Disclosures before we begin, I am long pager duty, which of course comes up. Akram is long pager duty, Slack, which is the subject of part two of our conversation, and Twitter. Rajiv is long Twitter, Tesla, Square, Pinterest, and Slack. This podcast was recorded Friday, October 30th, right after Twitter's earnings. The last thing before we start. Many of you discovered the Razor's Edge on Seeking Alpha, where I used to work. You may have seen, but Seeking Alpha suffered a great loss last week as COO and Editor-in-Chief Ellie Hoffman died. A few of the people who worked with Ellie wrote homages to his memory, including me, And I'd encourage you to check them out on Seeking Alpha, especially if you are a user of the site or have been. If you go to my profile, you'll see my piece, which also links to the other four published. Just dig around, you'll find them. Okay, let's get into our conversation with Rajiv Sood on Twitter. Hi guys, welcome on Rajiv. Good to have you on the podcast. Very excited to be chatting with you today. Yeah, thanks guys. Very, Very nice to be here talking to you guys too. I've had a long history listening to Akram. We're honored. <laughs> Perfect. We're Sorry, all, I'm just... Oh, listening to Akram a lot, so that's good. Yeah. 
finishing off my scrambled eggs. Oh, go. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's breakfast time here. Akram, you're on the East Coast, right? So you're, yep. you're just eating breakfast for lunch. Yeah. But I mean, after your stock drops 20% and it's pretty much <laughs> the only thing you're holding, that's, uh, <laughs> you got it. Like you said, a little, little lighter in the wall, heavier in the stomach. That's right. Enjoy it today. So let's, let's jump into that. Rajiv, what do you think about the, the earnings? I, I'm not even going to introduce it further. What do you think about yesterday's Twitter earnings? Yeah. So, I mean, mixed bag. Okay. The user growth wasn't as, as strong as expected, but they had tailwinds in Q2 coming into COVID. And so they had a massive spike in users. The platform isn't for everyone. We know this. It's text-based. It's not tap, tap, tap. It's not mindless. It, it takes a little bit of effort to, to use the platform. And so we know this, that the, that the global base of users is probably not going to use the platform. So users coming in a little light, Kind of expected. I actually wasn't even, I wasn't even looking at the user growth in terms of valuing this quarter. We were just looking at revenue because revenue was so bad the last six months, you know, last eight months, it was, it was terrible. And with the new ad server, I'm sure you guys use Twitter just as much as I do. The ad server, whatever, whenever it came online, there was a, a very noticeable shift in the number of ads and the surface area that they covered across the platform. So revenue was going to be stronger this quarter just based on that empirical evidence. I wasn't worried so much about user base, user growth. I wasn't even looking at that. We were looking at revenue growth, which they crushed it. I mean, they, they almost hit a billion dollar quarter in Q3, which is typically seasonally, Q1 and Q3 are seasonally typically slower quarters for advertising. Q2, you've got the back to school rush and Q4, you've got the holiday season for direct response and bunch of brands are trying to build a, a business around, around the holidays. So Q4 is, is, is seasonally stronger. So for them to print a close to a billion dollars in Q3 was pretty impressive, just because they switched to a new ad server stack, um, which was, you know, we can talk about this, but it was like a, a two and a half years in the making, this new ad server stack. I mean, when I got to Twitter, it was, it was a disaster. So I, I, I know how bad the ad server stack was and how bad the ability to serve ads was. So seeing this change in Q3 was uh, a welcome change. Now, where do they go from here? I mean, I, that is a question. I think they still churn really hard on the ads. I saw some tweet today about their, their ARPU being about a third of Facebook. And so, you know, I think, that, I think they have some room for ARPU growth there. They get their targeting a little bit more fine-tuned. They get more advertisers on the platform. You know, Ned said it in the call himself that uh, advertisers are looking at Twitter as one of their primary sources of, of uh, ad spend. And they're, they're, they're knocking on their door to spend more. I, I think he even alluded to saying that you, it'll be a Q4 unlike anything that they've ever experienced, which doesn't as mean- As our president be... would say, what best of all time. <laughs> <laughs> best quarter of all time. <laughs> ever. So <laughs> let me, I want to, I think the ad server stuff is going to be really interesting to break down before I wanted to sort of within that context of stuff we haven't seen before, like you called out Q3 and it occurs to me that normally Q3 doesn't have an election. Obviously that's a every four year thing or, you know, the midterm election sometimes, but I mean, this is a pretty big election. So that's got to be increasing engagement and advertising potential, but also the weirdness of 2020, where you have in Q3, you have the NBA finals, the, the Stanley Cup finals, baseball's weird condensed season, like, and sports is a big deal for Twitter. So do you, is that 
I, I don't know. There's so many. This year has been such a year of deciding what is one time, what is unusual. But does that like play in? Does that does that temper what you said about Keith? I'm arguing it does, I guess. But what do you think about that? I mean, yeah, definitely. I I, I think it has it has been a slower season for sports. I mean, sports are on, but it's not as li- it doesn't feel as lively as it did last year, of course. So I, I think they, they, there wasn't as much revenue around events per se, like specific events per se. Uh, like they tried to market themselves last year, like, you know, advertise against this event. I think that there was just more ability to serve ads because their new ad server was allowed it. And I think the election brought more engagement. So when there's more engagement, there's more eyeballs, there's more user time spent on the platform, they can show them more ads. So I think it, it, it kind of balanced a little bit, right? They, lo- they may have lost the sports revenue for ads, but they, they, they made it up with the, the, uh, the election challenge. So what Daniel's actually trying to get at, which is I, I, I'm in the same camp as Rajiv. If you look at this quarter going into it, consensus was like 760 million. Twitter last quarter was down 18%. And remember, we are lapping the ad stack revamp. So for someone like me, which I, which I think Rajiv articulated very well, I was looking at this quarter and being like, look, we have a big rebound in online advertising spend. And like in the back of my mind, somewhere buried down in there, knowing the Twitter story, I'm like, did their issues inhibit them from cashing in on it? Is there anything in the ad tech stack that I should be worried about? Because we know engagement's up. We know that the optionality around why people, at least for me and others, are looking at it is what can you do to drive revenue growth outside of advertising? But how healthy is advertising and how well did you do? And I, I think if you look at this quarter, so you're trying to sit here and make this argument. Look, my brother is in this space from an advertising sense, influencers, online advertising. He, and he messaged me yesterday and I wanted to slap him around as well. He's like, how did they only grow daily active users by 1 million with Trump unhinged and this and that? So I think there is some of that. And, you know, like everybody in theory having to just watch sports online that had been gone. So you're making a pent up demand argument, right, Daniel? You're saying that oh, like they, they had a commanding type of like, we're still in lockdown, sports come back, they get some engagement. It at engagement. least skews your comp, right? It at least skews, how, and so many things skew that comp, but yeah, you're, you know. Yeah, so you're, you're looking at it from that standpoint, and that's where you, I don't know if either of you guys got to read my quick note on this. I, I read it. Okay, yeah, you read it. So like, that's where you get into the context of this, where Facebook churned off some. Like you said, Rajiv, they had a huge ad. This is not some startup. Twitter's been around for forever, okay? I yeah. mean, so they have a mature base and they had a big pop. So if you look year over year, they grew 29%. Snapchat grew 18 and that's with all kinds of tailwinds. They've got the TikTok, they have the Gen Z, they had the, the filter reboot, which brought people back. Pinterest, every housewife is locked at home shopping for their homes. They can't do anything else. And I know, Rajiv, you're long Pinterest, right? And like we went through Pinterest last year. You know, I wrote up a long thesis on it in the low 20s. I was buying Pinterest earlier in the year in the teens. And it was just like, it was getting so much shit. And you're like, look, it's shopping. The argument there was they have an e-commerce pivot angle to work with. It's like an Etsy versus Pinterest. You can kind of combine them together too. But there's nobody who's a bigger tailwind looking into a COVID headwind than Pinterest when that headwind emerges as far as the user, because right. they're going to be outside. You may, you may shop for your house, but then you're going to go outside, like you said, yep. right? So when you look at Twitter in that context, 
which is where I get annoyed. And like you said, we were not thinking at all about the headlines having anything to fucking do with the daily active users. We had that problem two years ago where you're looking at it. And that was a reason to be short the stock. Like engagement yep. is down. This thing is just a niche, blah, 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 blah. So we know it's not as big of an audience as Facebook. And we know how it functions. And that's why there's other opportunities for them to make money. But what I thought was very powerful in this quarter, and I mean, I read that shareholder letter twice. You know, I had to literally turn off Twitter to like, just not <laughs> like get, like, you know, boil down that blood and, re- and read it and be like, okay. Because when, when Pager Duty blew up, I, like I, bad timing, whatever. I know hedge funds are going to obsess over the bookings. This, I looked at it. I'm like, fuck, this is a great quarter. You know, like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah, like, is there something that I'm deluded to because I own nothing but Twitter almost? So you're like, well, actually, no. You know, you sit there and you look at it and you're like, engagement looks better. Health and topics and this stuff, which a lot of people will be like, well, you should have figured this out a long time ago. Well, you know what? I haven't been sitting along the stock for a long time ago. I came in now because I'm noting these improvements. So you're stuck in the past, you know, fuck off. I don't really care. But if you're going to hit Jack with the Sleepy Jack, and the Sleepy Jack is a fair point, you know, like people have trolled him on that. But you bring us the context on what was exactly wrong with the ad tech stack. And a lot of people on the inside and in the space have pointed out it had major issues. So when I look at this quarter, and I mean, like, we'll go back to you and your expert opinion, but I'm like, hey, you knocked the cover off the ball. I don't have to worry about advertising. You're looking like a a $5 billion run rate ad business that I'm looking at, which, by the way, I'm not going to be getting so anxious about, like, the kids leaving to to move to TikTok next quarter or the housewives going outside in in six months. And I know that you were down 20%, you know, year over year last quarter. You're going to be looking at a 40% comp year over year next summer, barring an advertising industry collapse, which is going to hit everybody else with a higher multiple. Yep. I was just going to transition into the ad server stack. And I was curious if you could break down why it was so bad, what they actually did to change and when, so that, you know, if that's our focus, we listeners can understand where you guys are coming from with that and why that's so important to the Twitter story. Sure. Yeah. Let me start with maybe just a little bit of background on myself so that I can talk concisely about the ad stack. So since a child, I've been like a software developer slash hacker. I spent the better part of the last two decades building ad platforms at some of the most renowned ad platforms in the world. Started my career at Google, was there for a few years, built their ad stack on the AdSense side for content publishers. I moved over to a company called AdMob, which was all mobile advertising specific that got acquired by Google. Then after that team, I, I helped build Telepart, which was acquired by Twitter. So at Twitter, when, we, when I entered Twitter as, as a Telepart engineer, data engineer at Telepart, it was like running into a brick wall. Because what, we, what Telepart was doing was very highly customized, very highly dynamic ad serving across Facebook and the web, essentially, for retailers. And when we got to Twitter, the goal was, let's continue building this retailer base and this advertising direct response platform into Twitter's ad stack. Like I said, it was running into a brick wall. It was just an old ad stack. They were timing out. They couldn't even respond fast enough in the RTV to serve an ad back when an ad was was requested. The, The ad server just couldn't handle it. They could not look at enough data points per user to determine what ad would be most engaged with when we serve to that user. Not only were we responding slowly to the RTB auction, 
So we were getting timed out. We also didn't have enough data to select in the RTV auction a specific ad per user. Uh, so a lot, you know, these are just a couple of examples of, of big examples where the ad stack was a huge detriment to Twitter's to revenue growth. And, you know, we can get, I, I came in under Dick Costello and, and he left and then Jack, it was a six month or seven month hiatus and Jack came back and, you know, we were just like fumbling with the ad stack and trying to, trying to build this, build Teleparts stack into Twitter's legacy stack. Telepart was, you know, one of the most progressive forward thinking engineering crew that I've ever worked with. I mean, they were an incredible engineering crew that our ad stack was doing things that never dreamed of. In fact, we were so aligned with retailers, we wouldn't take money unless we were converting sales on the retailer site. That's how good the ad stack was. So when you get to Twitter and you see this ad stack, monolithic ad stack built in the early 2000s, and, and there's, it's just been acquisition, tack it on, acquisition, append some code to the ad stack. Over time, that started really detriment. It was a really big detriment. We had a, a huge co- a legacy code base. There was a lot of tech debt that had to get resolved. And so for the first, I would say, 18 months at Twitter, it was just a fact-finding mission. And what that mission was is what of the, the legacy existing ad stack has to be deprecated in order to move to faster technologies like Scala or you know, put stuff on Amazon Web Services instead of hosting things locally in a data center and having it more spread out and how to respond faster to the RTV, how to collect more more user signals in order to influence which ads they see. I mean, these are just like fundamental things that an ad stack has to be able to do. And Twitter's ad stack wasn't there. Jack comes in when he gets started. This is back in what, but four years ago, four and a half years ago, he comes into a mess. Not only is the ad stack completely antiquated, the culture of Twitter is destroyed because Dick Coslow stepped down to a seven month gap and Jack walks in and has to make some hard decisions. So he, I, I think that J- what the decisions that Jack had made at that time is why Twitter is where it is today. Now, we could argue at ad nauseum as, is he a good CEO? And is he sleepy Jack? And has he done the right things for Twitter? And should he stay at Twitter? We could argue those things all day long. But the fact of the matter is, there's double the amount of users, daily active users. The new ad stack is printing a billion dollars a quarter just out of the gate. You know, it literally just launched in Q2. And so, you know, we're starting to see life from all the changes that Jack had come in and, and laid down. Now, if we're talking about today and why the stock price dropped, I mean, we could talk about that too in detail. But I think that there's, that there's a lot of, the market doesn't like the, the way that Jack operates. I mean, we can talk about, right? I mean, Jack is, is, is a very quiet guy. He's not very vocal with shareholders as, as, as much as other CEOs should be maybe or are. So, you know, just specifically to the ad stack. I mean, he's he, getting trolled on the internet by people who don't deserve a leg to stand on to troll him. 100%. I mean, let's, man. That's, let's just be honest about that. that. Business, yeah. people, business people who, are, who are, are out there being like, okay, he's failed. Look at Snapchat. Look at this and look at that. And it's like, okay, yeah, sure. You're giving some good insight here from someone who was on the inside. So what you've articulated here is a very key point, which, I, I mean, I was once short Twitter. And when you look at the reasoning that you've now brought to bear essentially is that the popular market narrative from Wall Street and the Sleepy Jack is that he's failed to take it to where it needs to be, cannot iterate fast enough. And what you're pointing out is you're saying, hey, he walked into something that has a lot of potential, 
but its infrastructure was completely broken. Completely broken. Exactly. Yeah. In, in, in infrastructure and culture. So employees were not coming to Twitter. They were leaving by the droves. And, and the employees that were there were worried what people would think if they told them that they were working at Twitter. This was back right when Jack walked in. So infrastructure and culture. So two key things for actually running a business, forget the stupid stock prices. Two key things to running a business, which is if I want to build a subscription business or turn it into this or the next Substack or the place for podcasting or blah, 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 and I can't even do my core thing, which is keeping the lights on, I got a problem. Yep. When you frame it from that standpoint and you look at where we got to actually today and how to addressing and what, what you had to do, okay, and you can say, look, this is a very powerful brand advertising biz that essentially in its niche, no matter what you want to say, has no competition. Has no competition. I mean, Pinterest was right there too. They had a niche, but you look at it over a period of four or five years and you can see how big the MAUs for Pinterest has gotten. And you can see how large the MDAUs for Twitter have gotten. Now, you know, if we're doing like uh, some back of the envelope math, we can talk about what the MAUs for Twitter may look like today. And I'm going to guess that they're about 60% more than they were back when Jack started in 2016. Exactly. So people, people miss that concept where you're going to sit there and you're going to compare the monthly active users to the daily, the daily active. active. Yeah. So that, that's Twitter a, has ridiculous daily engagement. Yes, I agree. That's why they printed a billion dollar quarter is because of that daily engagement. People are on the platform several hours a day. I mean, it's very, it's very common for for fin Twitters, especially to be on the platform for all day, as long as the market is open, they're on it. So when you rewind to the people on CNBC and the beard and the testimonies, <laughs> and uh, I mean, that was a great, great look. But I mean, you are describing a person, which I really know nothing about in terms of a personality you've worked there. But I mean, he's easygoing. And he, yep. I mean, right now he's got a shareholder who's, I mean, Elliot, Jesse Cohen, and I mean, Paul Singer, founder. Their reputation is not anything easygoing. This is the antithesis of that. Okay. And he's got them in a standstill right now. His net worth is tied to what? Square. It's not really tied to Twitter. Right. So, like, the guy doesn't need the fucking headache. Right. Like, he, this actually matters to him. So, when I look at it from that standpoint, and I ask you, can I find a better CEO? I mean, like, could I really? If you want to flip it around and be like, his net worth is over there, but this is his fucking baby. I challenge people all the time. Pick one. You're asking for Jack's head. Pick a better CEO. Give me one name. I mean, the only name that comes to mind is John Laguerre for me. But again, different mindset, different breed of CEO. I think this running Twitter, a platform that is full of voices from around the world, when you look at what those voices could be, has a lot of negative connotation. And I don't think John Laguerre wants to deal with that shit. And if Jack is stepping up to the plate to deal with it, kudos to him. You know, he, I mean, like few, he said, pe few he people would, shit. dude. Few people would, exactly. Why would you, why would you want the headache, right? Exactly. And that's where, like, and I, I honestly, by the way, like, I'm, we throw shade and I, I join it all the time. So, but when you come back objectively, and we're trying to be objective here, and it's like, who, who else is going to run this? You know, because I saw some people who did not deserve to be taking a dump on him last night in the business community, take a dump on him. And I'm like, hey, I was worried that there could be something wrong with the ad biz. And by the way, you guys are all in ad business maybe as well. You should shut the fuck up, okay? Yeah. <laughs> like if you, if you think his stock is down because there's some execution issue here, they're executing. That's what I see. Yeah.
Yeah. I mean, one of the best things that happened at Twitter when I, while I was there is that they acquired Telepart because Telepart, the, like I said, the ad stack that we had built was revolutionary. It was like front running. That's why, that's why we were acquired by Twitter. I think Facebook was in the running for that acquisition too. You know, the engineers that they acquired, let's just call it an aqua hire. The engineers that they acquired, a lot of them are still there. And a lot of them are still building that ad stack. I helped put, lay the foundations for that ad stack, for the new ad stack before I left. And it was very strong. It is a very modularized, very easy to build on, very easy to test, A-B test, A-B-C-D test on. It's very easy to scale. On a revenue number of $500 million, they were not even able to scale the ad stack because like I said, it was timing out in the RTV auction. So if you look at it from like, from like a Pinterest perspective, Pinterest also didn't have the, rev- the, the revenue generation capabilities or, or desire until maybe a year ago. So they literally just turned on this like badass ad stack at Pinterest a year ago. All of these new platforms are building those ad stacks fresh, like Snapchat. I mean, monolithic ad stacks to keep it running and build a new one at the same time is like a technological nightmare. So it, 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 took, it takes a little bit of, of effort to do that. And I mean, we can see the results, $936 million in Q3. I mean, that is gigantic. Considering that you're a brand-driven, large brand-driven, no SMB really. I mean, if you people want to look at the way Twitter generates ad revenue, by the way, like they should have context. This isn't Facebook. It's not Instagram. I'm not shopping. You're not shopping. Yeah. So I'm not some small business advertising. It's like, it does not have that overlap yet. All of these companies and Rajiv, you would know as well as anybody, but there's no plug and play solution here, right? Every company, essentially Google, Facebook, Pinterest, Snapchat, TikTok, they've all got to figure out. I'm just trying to translate this. They've all got to figure out how they're going to serve ads on their platform because it's not like a typical webs you know news website from the late 90s where you're throwing banner ads or even sponsored content like you need to get something that's unique and individualized to your platform but that also advertisers and ad agencies can plug into from all different sorts of places and that is competitive right is that like when we try to think of why this is so hard that's because you have to make something that's competitive and can to your platform right yeah, I mean, th- there's a reason why the, all these platforms, these larger platforms build their own ad stack. I mean, they white label some stuff like checking for, uh, you know, making sure that, they, that they're, uh, they're not serving ads against content that they don't want to be next to. They white label those kind of solutions. But the, the fundamental, the, the type of ad formats and the data signals that they use are very unique to each platform and and how they're served and how they're and how advertisers are engaging their brands on those on those platforms they're all unique so i mean telepart was a, you know right right before twitter telepart was a good example of this we we worked primarily with facebook a little bit with twitter because their twitter's apis are a little antiquated and they've updated those as well in the last year or 8 months they've they've launched api version 3 and so you know we haven't even talked about that but Telepart would work with Facebook primarily as, as like a, a small white labeled solution for, for retail direct response. Outside of that, Facebook had its own ad server. Even with technologies that stand alone, like Telepart or the Trade Desk or AdMob, they all have very small niches to solve, whereas the bigger players have their own sort of infrastructure that, that, they, that they use to, to run their ad, their, their ad business on. That was the other thing, I, yeah, that you prompted, I guess. 
the trade desk is still obviously growing and strong, but you think of ad tech has been, I may be out of school here, but I feel like it's been a graveyard for investors. I mean, I, I just pulled up Rubicon Technology. I just feel like a lot of companies that in theory were going to solve ad technology on the web. And I guess the reason is because if Google and Facebook are sucking up 60% of advertising and then a few other platforms are sucking up a huge chunk of the rest, they've all got their in-house solution, right? And then- Yeah, the 2014 bust, I would say, is, you know, Adamania and ad tech, yep. you know, your rocket fuels and the, what's it called? Uh, what was it? The, there was probably seven or eight of them at the time. Right, data that, Zoo, you know, rocket went nowhere. fuel. Yes. Yeah, yeah, turn, there was so many of them. There was so, many. <laughs> So many competitors head to head that we had to go against and, and they don't, they don't exist today. A lot of them don't. And, and you know, the reason for that, I mean, is- that's been, been, sorry, Rajiv, but part of the reason that trade desk has done so well is that no money after that bust really went back into the space. Yep. I, I agree. That, that's why they've done so. They're, they're one of the few last standing and, and uh, the major ones that are, that are last standing. I mean, it was, it was trade desk, data zoo, Critio, turn, um, and then, uh, and then, you know, a whole bunch of Rubicon and, and rocket fuel, and then some smaller players. And I mean, a lot of them, I remember Ro- rocket fuel was just, I mean, it was like NASA engineers, you're going to make billions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that didn't pan out. Like that was, that to. was, that was a, like, I couldn't get borrow on that short. I, I mean, Jamie, who we had on, he was short that I remember when we talked about it, I, I even remember one of like the top tech investors, you know, like Mr. Growth, but one of the tigers was pretty short. Rocket fuel. was pretty short rocket fuel then and they're just like yeah this is this is this is ridiculous it's, it was a mess dude uh, the whole team that whole the whole platform was a mess you know but I they mean, had a good story nasa yeah. and and ad tech and a great name rocket fuel but you know it didn't, didn't pan out great names are key by the way i mean wait, that is that's always underestimated very underestimated i i i, I agree so could you explain one thing to us which is since like you clearly i mean understand this very well the the map delay so like that's the other thing that we like because you're talking about the stack i don't know if you you know they mentioned that they're delaying 2021 release yeah to 2021 can you explain that part of, of what's going on yeah so that i actually the map platform i i get anecdotal evidence inside now being on the outside of twitter from people who are on the inside that map platform seems to be only very strong internationally. It makes some headway in the US, but but Japan, markets like Japan and APAC, you know, the greater region of APAC is where MAP really shines. And can you explain why? Yeah. Like you have a theory on that? Or I mean, like, can you even like, just dumb down like to an eight-year-old what the difference is between the MAP and the other ad stack? Yeah. So MAP, MAP is mobile application platform. So re- really what 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 you're trying to do is is serve ads that are driving mobile app engagement. So either you're trying to sell something inside of a game, or you're trying to convince somebody to down, go and download the game itself. That's that's basically what Map allows you to do. Uh, different technology, right? I mean, you have to you have to be able to uh, marry like what what the user has on their phone already to, to, to highlight that to the advertiser in order for them to to ad, uh, advertise against, and then and then try to back into conversion which is very difficult in, in the mobile space, especially because companies like Apple, which is one of the largest mobile manufacturers on the, on the planet, hide unique identifiers. They don't even share that. So you have to go, have to back into some sort of identifier for each individual yeah, user. Associate it gets, IDs. Yeah, it gets, a little, it gets a little tricky, especially today, where as, as we get more and more scrutiny over what can be shared. Uh, and, then, and then 
outside of map, you can serve ads on desktop. You can serve ads on, on, your, on your mobile inside of, a, inside of a mobile platform. Like if you're using Twitter or Facebook, you're seeing ads there. Th- that, that's all being served outside of the map platform. Now, my theory as to why map isn't as big in the US versus, versus APAC, I mean, my guess really is that there's just more frequency of apps being downloaded and, and turned over on. There's just more people there that are willing to give new apps a try. And, and that, that's, that's really my only working theory. I, I really don't have a, a theory beyond why it works so well in APAC and not as much in the US. Even with AdMob, it was a mobile advertising platform, but we had to pivot early days to not, I shouldn't call it pivot. It's, it's more of like an expansion. We have to expand early days to not only serve inside of mobile applications. We had to serve inside of mobile web pages, uh, you know, mobile landing pages, because it was, it was too niche of a product to just serve inside of a, a specific mobile app. So if you're playing a game and you see an ad inside the game, that isn't served by a standard uh, ad network or a standard ad stack. That's served by a mobile ad stack or mobile ad platform. So that's where Map comes into play. I, I would say that Map is just uh, delayed to 2021 because they're trying to figure out what what features or what abilities that they want to put into the into the platform for their uh, APAC partners. I mean, they've said it many times on the call. Like Japan is their largest market for Map. That is their focus is APAC. Uh, beyond that, I don't know much about why they would delay uh, to 2021. I mean, they they cited also the you know, privacy integration into uh, and 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 which direction that's going around with Apple's changes. Yeah, the UUIDs and, and and the Android IDs. Yeah, I mean that that probably plays a lot into it. I mean, even you know, even Facebook has like internal fire drills around this. I have a buddy at Facebook, and and they're all freaking out about you know the changes that Apple and Google are making to their to what can be pulled out of a mobile application in terms of identifiers. So I think with all of that being in play, they're just waiting three, four months to yeah, make sure. Facebook that... keeps warning. I mean, they Facebook warned about it on the call last night again. Yep. So. Look, as, as far as product releases go with Twitter, I don't think that a delay is a cause for concern. I think it's more that they want to polish it. If you look at any, the limited that they've had, if it, we can talk about how many they've had, we can calculate the number, but the limited of product releases they've had they're all polished. They all work really well. I haven't, topics works really well. You follow a topic and you get really good content. You turn off the algorithmic timeline and you, you go back to a reverse chronological timeline. It, that, that toggle works really well. The, the algorithmic timeline and the machine learning and the AI that they have built and spent the better part of half a decade on, it works really well. The, the content that they pull in to these topics is good. I mean, it gets a lot of engagement. And they're seeing that. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Yeah. So, <laughs> like, as someone who's just, you know, got an act, I don't know how, how how active you've been on Twitter, by the way, since you worked there. Because, I mean, I've had a Twitter account and used it since maybe 2010. Yeah. Only used it a little bit more frequently from a finance work standpoint. If, like, let's say I was publishing a short thesis on something and you wanted to, like, get, get engaged and deal with trolls and whatever. But, Financial news, I would even not even have to use the app. Like I could just, I could go in, see what was tweeted without even having to log in. Yep. But then eventually you start logging in, you start following stuff. Actually, you're a good buddy. What's it called? Brought me in from an interest standpoint, to tell you the truth. Uh, Elon Musk, because he's just, he's, he's you know, Twitter news around him and, and his, and, his uh, tweets. and the markets and the, his tweets. You know, actually, like, you know, I would have my brother who would be trading Tesla. Other people are trading Tesla. 
friends with a Tesla, Tesla, Tesla short seller. And it's like, oh, by the way, you know, look, look at what Elon tweeted. I always look at him and I'd be like having drinks with this guy and he can't get off Twitter. Yeah. Right. And, and I'd be like, I'd be like, what? and here I am just as bad now. Right. Yeah. But uh, where you're just like, you know, I'm just, I mean, COVID has played a big part in it, but I mean, were you always as, as engaged or like, I, I would say that like, from my experiences coming in and out from before, like I like 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 you said, the product works. Yeah, that's a good question, Akram. I, I honestly, my engagement, my my heavy engagement, and I know that the, when this started was when they sw- they they flipped the algorithmic timeline. Um, a reverse chronological timeline just didn't ever do it for me. I never I I use the platform maybe once a month before the algorithmic timeline started, and then you know it's a slow pull into the product. You start seeing tweets that are more tailored to you. They start building a signals around you. They know that I'm in fin, that I love fin, FinTwit, so my whole timeline is FinTwit based. So it, that that algorithmic timeline was a big pull for me. I didn't even use Twitter before I started working there. <laughs> um, I hardly there you used go. It. Yeah. So I mean, I, my in my long position didn't even start until the algorithmic timeline started. So you know, in the teens, essentially, I did not see a use case for the the broader world with a reverse chronological timeline. It just does. It doesn't work. And there's a reason why every single platform uses algorithms because they want engagement. They want to keep the user on the platform. And with the reverse for chronological timeline, you can't do that. Yeah, you got to build the addiction. So you have to reinforce, which is also part of the problem of social media. Yeah, right. Exactly. And so once that launched, then they then they were able to collect more signals again on an on an antiquated ad stack. The signals were stored, but we weren't able to access the data that was being stored there. Or even you know run like a neural net type of a, 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 a machine learning algorithm on it to build like a a better understanding of all the users within this like this bubble of FinTwit or sports or or you know whatever Twitter that you're part of and, and so the algorithmic timeline really jump started that and I think once that started they had a clearer focus of okay this is what we're gonna build upon we're gonna make that home timeline as amazing as possible. So that no one leaves the home timeline unless you have to search for something outside of your home timeline. And I think they've done a phenomenal job. I mean, I spent a lot of my hours in the home timeline. It, it's fantastic. And so they've, they've kept me engaged. And this is, again, Jack plays the long game. Catch the users first and then monetize them. You know, back before Jack started, it was like, fuck, let's just throw shit out a wall and see how much money we can get out of that. We don't care if the users are sticking. We don't care if they're engaging. We need to make money off of this platform. So with Noto, it was like, let's just stuff ads against this live NFL stream that was playing on Twitter. And the ads were, just, they were timing out. They weren't even working. There was no ads. <laughs> and so like, you know, when Jack came in, he's like, wait, wait, time out. We have to fix the, the health of the platform, get people more engaged, and then we'll worry about revenue and monetization. In fact, he never once had uh, revenue or monetization priority outside of March of this year. I mean, we're talking seven months. So uh, it's early days. We're in early days of revenue. I, I think that subscription is going to start. I think it's, it's very important for, for people who spend hours uh, on Twitter writing up good content to be paid for that. My, microtransactions are going to be a huge thing on Twitter, but they need to get some product out and slow and steady, as is the Twitter way, do it right and do it once measure twice, cut once type situation here. So it's not going to come as fast as people want, but it will come. Like I, I know that that revenue is top of mind for them and, and they will do whatever they can to maximize revenue outside of hurting the, the use case of the platform. You know, 
Uh, I don't want to be bombarded with, with 15 ads and uh, in, in, with, with, with five tweets, you know? And so like, it's a balance. They have to make a balance. And an interesting thing that that, so as an observation, we're so used at this point to Akram and I were texting about Spotify. It's software is so accustomed to MVPs and then you sort of do it well enough so that it kind of works. And if there's a problem, you just say user error and you you throw your hands up. And so it's interesting, but also Facebook for example, you know, with the infamous move fast, break things, they mint money and et cetera. And the other side of that, which I wanted to, I guess the two things I wanted to ask you guys, my last questions on the quarter, Rajiv, you just mentioned subscriptions, which was something that was a big buzz starter this summer, which really kind of ignited Twitter's move, I would argue. I even day traded the stock that day just to to feel like I wouldn't be an idiot for uh, for missing out. That was a fantastic day for options, by the way, I I crushed it that day. (laughs) <laughs> so subscriptions i wanted to see if you guys i haven't read the call so i was curious if you guys had any thoughts there but then the other thing is and i saw this brought up by investors i like the the opex is still pretty high i mean revenue went up 14 percent, but opex or whatever expenses went up 13 percent. so like at what point the profits do matter at the end of the day so with thoughts on that aspect as well uh, uh, I'll let you, you start this conversation. I, 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 took well, look, a- I mean, I can see Twitter as like, we just said, this is where you like, which is, I was, I was making the point on Snapchat and Pinterest that when you think about what you have to scale to, to be very like, to be like a Facebook level, profitable ad business. Again, this is about expectations in terms of how you measure a business. We are, we are programmed to exist in this world of success or failure. And success isn't just Facebook and anything that's not Facebook is failure, right? Uh, Like there are businesses that fit into different niches. And when you look at Twitter's unit economics and where they're taking the business, understand this still has a data business that is probably generating the bulk of operating income. Mm -hmm. So ad businesses are not easy to, if you look at Snapchat and you look at Pinterest, one is right now what? Right now, I, I, I called it out. Twitter is about 122% of Pinterest, and it's about you know 40% larger than Snapchat. And when you think about both of those businesses, they still need to get to Twitter scale to be looking at inching towards that profitability metric. And one is twice the size of Twitter, and the other is right now 30% bigger. So I think when you look at it, Twitter generated on a gap basis, positive operating income. So it's generating cash, like 240 million this quarter. You can look at this business from a steady state standpoint and say, look, let's just set aside if it was to grow. Look at Twitter, not as entertainment. Look at it as a business tool. We all use it for work. From an investing standpoint, that's part of the driver we're there. I enjoy it a lot for sports, but what's got me on it is 100% work-related. I'm there. Uh, yes, it, it mixes entertainment in with it, but it's a business tool to me, no different than Bloomberg Terminal was as far as its necessity from day-to-day work. And for a journalist, it's the same thing. And for these executives in their spaces in tech, it's the same thing. So when I look at it, I say, this is a 40% EBITDA margin business from an ad tech standpoint without having to do much. But they go, they're going to continue to invest in growth opportunities because that's the nature of things. But is it going to be a business 
that mints profitability on a scale of Facebook? No, it's not the fucking mall. It's not Instagram where like I find I'm buying a 1980s T-shirt after I tweet about watching a movie. <laughs> Sorry, after I post a, you know something about where like in the context I was like some 80s movie. Yeah, I mean it's it's not a platform for everyone. It's it is it's 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 a work like you said. We use it mostly primarily for work, and most of the people that are at home are using Instagram, Facebook, and and Snapchat and Pinterest. Not for work. It's for leisure. It's an entertainment platform. Those are entertainment platforms. Those are media platforms or commerce platforms, if you want. Um, but but Twitter, it's it's a different beast uh, as a platform. And I think I think what we're going to see is is revenue is going to continue to grow grow just from the ad stack, just from the ads business is going to continue to grow at a healthy, nice clip because they still have a lot of room to build into that ARPU that Facebook has and to to monetize all the users that they that they have I, I, in fact I, I i can't say this for sure because i don't have numbers internally but if i were to if i was going to guess they have 187 million monetizable daily, daily active users i would guess that they're not monetizing all of them in a, in a fashion that they that they should or they could and and so i think that the ad server is going to the ad business is going to continue to grow at a healthy clip they're going to start monetizing a lot more of those monetizable daily active users and they're going to layer in new revenue streams subscription services where their data business is going to grow at, at a nice healthy clip. Like you said, because we use it for the data that is available that Bloomberg terminals also ingest and builds their, their platform on. There, there's a lot of optionality here to build revenue. Revenue, I, I was concerned about revenue only going into the print. Once they printed a $900 million quarter, I was like, you know what? This, I think that they've got the revenue from an ads perspective only. If you're only looking at the ads business, they've got the revenue I wouldn't say solved, but on a good path, just from the ads biz. And let's see. see, that's, see we're seeing, I, that's exactly what I want to hear out of you because we're both, like, we're both seeing eye to eye on that, right? Like, I was just like, in the back of my head, I know after the last two quarters what was going on. But like, I had that little, you know, that little fear that the problems with the ad tech stack and like, they're going to come out with a print that people are going to be like, oh, look at this like thing while, while Snapchat and Pinterest are doing what they're doing. Because they're in that transition. So for them to print the way they did and be like, oh, they were not inhibited from capturing revenue in the rebound. Actually, they did powerfully well considering yep. what's been going on. And their CPE also went down, which was amazing. The ROI for advertisers is going up. So they are, they're, our advertisers are also excited about it because the signals that they're using are a lot stronger. And so, you know, there was a lot of data concerns back in the day, like what signals I touched on, they had all these signals, they weren't using them because the, the, the auction wasn't, wasn't being responded to fast enough, they couldn't, they couldn't, you know, process all those signals. And then there was also a lot of data concerns. So I think the day that I was leaving, they had just launched a new terms of service, which specifically was around, we were going to use more data, like we have all this data, we're going to use it. I mean, this was a year and a half ago, before uh, I left two years ago. So Two years ago, they had, they had just started that terms of service. And six months ago, seven months ago, they launched a new ad stack. So we're going to see some significant, some significant impact on the positive side on the ads business. You know, I, I, we shall see how Q4 prints, but I'm not worried about the ads business as, as I was once was. And anecdotally, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but anecdotally, a year ago, I would see several tweets a week or a month that were like, why is Twitter not monetizing me with more ads? Why do I not see any ads? Now, the, the, the narrative has changed. And now I'm seeing, 
I would love to pay Twitter to not show me any ads. So I'm like, again, th- there's, there's enough ads that are being shown to people that they're ready to pay Twitter to not see ads. So we're, we're in a different narrative around the ads biz where people are moving to, now people want to move to a subscription model that so they don't see ads. So they're, they're, I think the progression into, into revenue is very healthy. And, and to basically get to your point, Daniel, is that it's the mix is from an, from an operating structure standpoint for profitability is in theory healthier than some of the other ones. I mean, again, Facebook is economies of scale. That's the definition of the story there. Yep. There's not much else to say other than you have 2.5 billion yeah, and you're tying it all together. <laughs> yep. These, when you look at Pinterest and when you look at Snapchat, if they can't get to Twitter's level, even they are structurally less profitable businesses. Because again, one is very, very Gen Z video driven. I mean, Twitter is like a country club hangout if you think about it. For, for if you were to break it down from an average net income standpoint of the of the audience that you that you can get at there, and if you look at it from business utility, which is the data pipe, that's a licensing business. People don't talk about this. I, I got into this with somebody on Twitter when he, when he was like. He's like, Spotify is really cheap compared to Twitter. And I'm like, dude, pick any other stock, please. Like, what is it, you know? Uh, yes, I like Spotify as a platform, but Spotify, he could, and he was doing it on enterprise value to sales. And I'm like, he's like, because Spotify is a subscription revenue business. And I just called out. I was like, look, look at gross profit. He's like, you can't. It's a subscription revenue business. It's not an ad business. It's not recurring. I'm like, no, no, no. It's a subscription revenue business net of what the content creators take, okay, which is licensed agreement. So then I'm going to look at your net revenue is recurring. That's right. And I don't get to, I don't get economies of scale on that if my costs scale up the same way. Now, are they entering into an advertising business? They are. Why? Because of the fact that the music industry has managed to hold their ground, both the publishers and the creators in terms of what they can negotiate with, because there's an Apple. And there's an Amazon Music, mm-hmm. so they have multiple outlets to approach this. Now, yeah, that you could th- this could turn into ESPN, and everybody could drive up the rate for music or whatever. But are you going to be as engaged with it? It's the same problem that you have in terms of subscription with content with like a Netflix. And when you look at where is Netflix going, ARPU wise, obviously higher. But going back to Twitter, you look at Twitter and you say, well, they've got a licensing business. That's a recurring revenue business. It's a data pipe. Everybody has to suck on. 100% you know why? Margins. Because that data is valuable. And it's 100% margins. <laughs> so that's where you get, and I, and, and I got into it with, with that person where I'm like, it is, it's 100% operating margin subscription business. It's just not called that. But there are people, people, when people look at the business structurally, a 25% gross margin subscription revenue business should not be compared to a 90% gross margin software business. That's right. Because one is selling you a business tool. One is selling you entertainment. If Spotify raises its price to $20, I will walk away because I'm options. not spending that much time yeah. streaming. Right. I'll go to TikTok, which has found an ad way to do it, and it will show me a dance video while I listen to the music. Yeah, Spotify is going to have a tough time raising their prices. I mean, Netflix, uh, that's fine, but Spotify, I could see having a tough time raising prices. Uh, prices to a point where they, they are you know, generating enough revenue to become you know, profitable or, or call that as a, as, a, as a large revenue driving source. I mean, this is the same thing that this is one of the reasons why I like Slack because their gross margins are so high. They're 88%. So, you know, I know your long uh, work as well. 
you know, uh, you know, can we just, can we just, can, can just again, not to, to interrupt, but can I, can I just point out one thing? What company did Twitter cite in their shareholder letter as an example of someone who had success using their, their ad stack? Just to rub it in. <laughs> Slack. 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 Oh, I thought it was Slack. I, who, by the way, all we're doing is complaining about when are they going to start marketing like Microsoft? I loved it. I literally, I was like, are you guys trying to take a dump on me? Like, what's going on here? I'm about to get trolled by 20 people who are like, oh, Twitter, good, good call there. Why can't you just buy Twilio? <laughs> Rajiv, I was maybe moving off. You, you've spent time at Google as well, as you said. You started there. You worked at AdMob, which got bought there. First of all, I, after getting heckled on Twitter for owning too many stocks, Google was one of the ones I cut because it was basically a, na- like a Nasdaq long position for me. And of course, they did well in earnings. But well, I mean, that also had gone nowhere since COVID. Yeah, okay, it's just flat. flat we're, yeah. we're up seventy three percent going into yesterday. So, like, that's again, you know, that's where you get into the. Daily volatility in COVID, which we can get into, is essentially like what we haven't seen since the late 90s. You may drop 20% and then you're up 15% for a sneeze on a Tuesday. Yeah. So like you can't take (laughs) earnings moves seriously, which is what makes trading so damn hard. Yeah. The volatility during COVID has just been wild. Up, down, up, down. The 10, 20% swings are, like you said, sneeze in the wind. (laughs) But what do you... What's your sense of the differences? This is maybe going to start as a facile question, but the differences between those sorts of operating cultures, Google obviously is a behemoth. I was just looking as I was thinking about this question, Google's revenue is still double Facebook's. I know they have other lines, but their advertising revenue was 37 million last or excuse me, billion last billion 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 last quarter. (laughs) So Obviously, totally different scale, and Google still is the tollway of the internet. And I'm not necessarily getting into the whole regulatory landscape, but what did just in terms of being inside both companies, like what did you see as similar, different? Just how do you think you have experience from two of the five or six biggest consumer tech names out there? So how do you sort of because you sound super passionate about Twitter? I'm just curious how Google, what impact it left on you. Yeah, Google was was a was a fantastic experience. I mean, I that was my my first sort of dip in the water with ads and data integration and data engineering. So it was a fantastic experience. If you're talking about just culture, though, it, it, it they they differ. I mean, again, I was at Google in, in the early 2000s and, and Twitter just like you know five, six, four or five years ago. So it, we're talking about two different time frames here. But the the culture at Twitter was a lot less aggressive in terms of. And it may have changed in the last two years. I'm, maybe it depends on who the, the mid-level managers are there now. But it didn't feel as aggressive as these are the timelines that we have to hit. And if you don't hit these timelines, you're fired. Google, Netflix, Amazon, they all have that sort of a culture. Whereas if you don't hit these timelines, your team is done. Twitter, it was even today, like you see it, right? Has anyone lost their job for any issue that Twitter has had in the last two years? I don't, I haven't seen it. And so I think the culture there is a little different. I don't know if that plays into why product releases are so slow or, or, or slower than, than what people are accustomed to. I chalk it up to, they, they just polish things a little bit better and they, they take their time with things to, to make sure that they, when they go out, they are. Polished. Does everybody take an ice bath? <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> but there, but okay. So in that sense, there are some similarities, right? Google has, you know, massages and, 
there's there's a yoga room and there's meditation time and there's some some similarities across the the tech space for all of these companies. But as far as like product releases and revenue numbers, uh, I I, I want to during my time at Twitter, it didn't seem as cutthroat as what I've experienced in, in other platforms or other other companies in my career. I mean, you were there obviously very early on. It's not like I don't know if you if you remember the interview because someone actually just shared it and I shared it again where Peter Thiel took a dump on Eric Schmidt in 2014 or 15. And he's like, you guys don't have, you have 40 billion in cash because you have no ideas. <laughs> Amazon is is investing. They have ideas. They have things to do with their money. You guys don't have anything. You should just give your money, pay it out and tell people you're not innovating. The guy's interviewing both him and I don't know if you've seen it. I haven't. No, no, but I, Okay. You should watch it. So it's, it's Schmidt sitting with Thiel and Thiel is just literally being like, you're out of ideas. I mean, obviously Peter Thiel, uh, quite an opinionated guy, but deservedly so. He, he he's made that point. You're at you're at Google when it's building its empire, not when it's uh, it's rolling. Matured, yeah, not when it's already matured. So I think it would be a much different culture today than when I was there. So yeah, definitely different times in Google's domination. I would say like at that time it was just building, and and now it's like you know it's pretty ubiquitous. It's around the world. Everyone knows what it is. They make a ton of money. It's the go-to place for advertising for direct for direct response, and w- along with Facebook. Um, so we, everyone knows what it is. Back when it was starting. We were just like, shit, how do we collect data in order to serve ads to these blog pages? Like Blogger was a big thing back then, you know? <laughs> so completely yeah, that's different. that's crazy. Completely I still have my blog. Still have my blog. So Daniel, by the way, before we completely close this Twitter chapter, I, I did want to make one point and get Rajiv's take, which is what, what I think is interesting, which is that this is not, I don't look at Twitter today and say, okay, they fixed the ad problem. And it's going to, you know, they're going to monetize that organically, which is part of the healthy part of a business and be like, I'm going to, I need to own this stock here. We can agree based on where things were tape wise a little while ago, I would have been thinking about selling, okay, over 50. So, you know, the 70% run since the end of June, you do get a little carried away, but here's where things for me change on Twitter. When I look at it and when I look at Snapchat being twice as value, I've noticed that it has its own secular tailwinds around the core of the business, which is what? Whether we want to joke about it, and we've discussed this extensively, a whole new generation of people have started stock trading under COVID. Whether you want to call it gambling or it's healthy or whatever, that has been very good for Twitter. And two, the changes in journalism and news and creation and this podcasting that like we're sitting here doing a podcast today and everyone, it seems like, you know, we joke about it. Who doesn't have a podcast today? I launched a Substack a couple of days ago. Daniel was at Seeking Alpha and I've been writing for, I don't know, maybe running like a, essentially a newsletter on the side as a hobby for 13 years. That hobby for other people now is like, you know, a very a successful business, business yeah. a subscription business, right? So when you look at that, you're like, oh, I left, I'm a fucking idiot. I left all this money over on the table over the last 15 years, you know, why try to figure out the market when I, you can just run a subscription business? Here's an interesting thing. Every day I see a journalist being like, I'm leaving, start my Substack. And every day I see somebody launching a podcast and what, where do they have to go to promote? There's only one place. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And they only engage their audience in that place, which has been free, which is going to be a very good segue when we get into your, clearly what your favorite stock, right? Because you know, maybe uh, you can get somebody on planet Earth can engage the guy into into helping Jack out, right? When we get into Tesla, but nobody else has done a better job of promoting his brand and building it on Twitter than Elon than that Musk. Guy. Yep. <laughs> okay. I mean, Free that advertising. business. Yeah. 
free advertising like no tomorrow in an industry that spends billions. Yeah. Yep. The the funny part of when when Jack had Elon on in that was it last year was it fix Twitter versus like, how, it? How, how do you fix Twitter and and I, I, if I was Elon I would have responded it's perfectly fine don't change a thing yeah, but it yeah. Is, yeah. right yeah. because I'm milking it literally yeah. so it's like buy Tesla shares Jack <laughs> like what, what what you're saying is exactly spot on you know like these guys that start Substacks or subscription businesses. They don't need to spend money on advertising. They engage an audience on Twitter and it works really Yeah, but that's a fallacy now, right? Because, Rajiv, it's going to be increasingly competitive. To build an audience, yes. it's going gonna, it's gonna to require you to, like, this assumption that my business model has no marketing cost, hello, wrong. Yeah. Now Your marketing costs exist. The toll, the toll road is sitting there. You're on it. It's just not going to be free if you want to play the game. If you're expecting to make revenue, you should be more than willing to cut them in a slice if that's the only place, which is where you get into their opportunities going forward where they don't have to clutter you with ads and they can find a way to work with creators and it better be polished because everybody else building things on the outside, Twitter is sitting there as Goliath essentially looming as a threat to your entire business model because you are feature integration for them. Because the only place you can engage and promote, like you, you can't start a, a news business without distribution. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, these, I, got, are, I, got, I got worked up there. No, that's fine. I mean, these, it are just, these are just, it happens. No, I know. This is, look, to wrap up Twitter, I'm just going to say this. I'm going to be very clear. I'm very happy with where the business is today. I have issues with how Jack and Ned deliver the narrative. And, and, and oh, that, there you go. And that, and that is where I... That, <laughs> I think the delivery of the narrative. I mean, I, you know, it has to be said, though. Like, the narrative is just no, he's not clear. Too ch he's chill about that. He should kick them in the teeth. Yeah. I mean, you saw, I don't know if you guys saw Ned on CNBC this morning, but it's like a deer in the headlights. I mean, he, I love that he's bought into the vision, and I love that the employees cherish Ned. But, you know, you are the CFO of one of the, of the most powerful platform on the planet. Kick people in the goddamn teeth, man. Tell them what it is. Just be like, listen, CNBC, what's your business without me? How are you guys all on there? You want to start paying affiliate fees? You want to pay affiliate fees or you want to shut the fuck up? Exactly. Isn't, isn't that a little bit, not to get all boring and long-term and whatever, but I'm looking, Twitter's up 30% for the year amidst a pandemic. And that's with this 20% sell-off day. It's a little bit of like, we all get hyped up. I can't believe it's down 20%. I, I could have, if I could have modeled any scenario, it's not down 20%. Uh, yeah, I think the market sell-off today was also a little bit of a key. Of yes, a key which is amazing because yeah. it's the same thing happened after PagerDuty. People are like, oh, PagerDuty is down 25%. I'm like, Apple's down 10%. Fuck off. <laughs> Akram, Akram is going to start a subscription newsletter to tell you his position so that people can trade against the market. Yes, you should trade VIX options on me. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Razor's Edge. Subscribe to this wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman and at Akram's Razor with suggestions, requests, or anything else. We aim to publish a new episode every Tuesday morning and love to hear from you. If you can share this with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd be really grateful as that will help the podcast grow and improve. This has been a Shortman Studios production. Our theme song is Move On by Soquel. Thank you again for listening, and see you next week.